Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? We're going to finish the chapter today, verse 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and of course this chapter has been so phenomenal in how it's focused upon the one way in which you can know a person is surrendered to Christ, and that is the love that God's Spirit produces in their life. And this love is a love that will not let us go. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. His love that will not let us go. Paul has shown us what life is like without this love in verses 4 through the first part of verse 6. Then he turns around and shows us what life is like with this love in the last part of verse 6 and verse 7. Then he makes a powerful statement that's one of the hinges of this whole chapter. He says in verse 8, God's love never fails. And in using that term fails, he uses a term that is sometimes used of a ship that has gotten off course and has shipwrecked. It did not get to the port for which it sailed. And what Paul is saying is God's love gets the ship to the port that it's destined to go to. In other words, there's a hope for every believer we have this morning. It's, there's a port that we're headed towards. And God's love that's, that caused us to be saved is God's love that is sustaining us and sanctifying us now is the same love that will get us to that port that we're destined to go to. And what is that port? The, what is the hope of every believer? It's one day in seeing Jesus Christ face to face. John says in his epistle, when we see him, we shall be what? like Him. That's what we're looking forward to. We can mature down here. We are to mature down here. And it's progressive. We grow and we grow and we become more and more conformed to His image. But there's coming a day when the ultimate maturity is going to take place. When we are glorified and when we see Him, like I said, we will be like Him. Now how do you know that, John, that Paul is talking about the event of seeing Jesus face to face? That event that John says will change us to where we'll be like Him. We'll look at verse 12. The context is very clear. <clears throat> he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then. And you've got to ask yourself, when? Drop back a couple of verses and he says, when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. We've identified the perfect not as being the word of God, not as being the Lord Jesus Christ, although certainly he is. But when, when that full maturity comes, when that glorified state comes that we'll enter into. And he says, when the perfect comes, we shall see him face to face. When that time comes, we shall see him face to face. Now on the day when the perfect comes, when that day we're finally glorified and changed and forever to be like him. On that day, 
He says, but if they're gifts of prophecy, in verse 8, they will be done away. And literally, it's not gifts of prophecy, it's prophecies. In other words, there's going to come a day that there's not going to be any more need for sermons. <laughs> there's going to come a day that if you can go back even beyond that, there's not going to be any need for any prophecies of the New Testament prophets or prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. All of them will be absorbed into the fullness of the whole. Because each prophecy now is only a part. And on that day, they'll be set aside, future passive. God himself will set them aside. Not in the sense of done away with, because they'll still exist, but, but, but they'll sort of disappear when you see the full picture. On the day when the perfect comes, all languages will be dismissed. They'll only have need for one language. He says, if there are tongues, they will cease. Of course, we've identified tongues as known, understandable languages, and they will cease, future middle. On their own, they will cease, because we'll all just speak one language. On that day when the perfect comes, if there's knowledge, any kind of knowledge that we have, it will be done away or set aside. Same exact verb, it's used with prophecies. All the knowledge that we think we have right now of Christ and his love for us will one day be set aside because it'll be so overwhelming the knowledge that we don't have even while we're here. It'll be simply set aside. And then Paul shows why. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Any knowledge that we have, any prophecy or sermon that we have or proclamation of God's word is simply a fragment of the whole. But one day when we see him, the one who is the fullness of knowledge, the one who is the embodiment of all prophecy, all of that will be set aside. And Then Paul shows how we, we are progressively moving towards that. Maturity is a part of being reborn. Just like when you're physically born, my little Holland, <laughs> had to bring her into this, my little Holland, is almost three years old, and she's growing up. There's a progressive maturing in her life. Well, the same way in the spiritual life, you don't want somebody to remain as a baby. First Corinthians chapter 3, he talked about them and chided them for being babies in the nursery. He's telling them, grow up. And now I think he, he, he sort of brings a subtle rebuke back to them. You, while we're here, we're progressing toward the port that we're destined towards. We are maturing, but there's going to come a day when we see him, that full maturity will take place. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And to me, he's not just mentioning that as in random because of his whole context has been Corinthians, grow up. Come on, move out of that chasing after emotional experiences. Move out of attaching yourself to gifts. Attach yourself to the giver and grow up. And as you do, you're progressing toward that day that you're promised to arrive at. You see, love never fails. We're going to get there. The implication of this whole passage to me is you can, you can determine how you're going to arrive. <laughs> Even right now, we, we can choose. I can either surrender to him and grow up and live in the sufficiency of who he is, or I can fool around here and chase after attaching myself to flesh and experiences and be miserable the whole way. And what he's basically saying is if you'll just go on and attach, it's a lot sweeter journey, and you will arrive. God's love never fails. God's love that set us on this journey will cause us to arrive one day when we see him face to face. And oh, what a day it's going to be when we see him one day. We're going to be looking at this very closely in our message today. Matter of fact, look at verse 12 and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's talk about this love that will not let us go. This love that even though we're upside down like the church of Corinth many times in our life, we will arrive. We will arrive. It will see us through. It will get us there. Let's look at that love. The first thing I want us to see is that at the very best, at the highest spiritual pinnacle of your life or my life, when we think we have a grasp of God and His love for us, at the very best, we have but a dim view of God's love. Look what he says in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Now the mirrors like we have today have to be gotten out of your mind. When I look in a mirror today, I see very clearly. I don't like what I see very clearly, but I see very clearly. My wife even has these mirrors that magnify. Who would want a mirror that magnifies? Ladies, you're nuts. Get rid of those things. I mean, you see things that you don't need to see, but you see very clearly in these mirrors. The kind of mirrors that they used in Corinth were not the same kind we have today. Ours are glass, which has coated on the back of it lead or mercury, and we set them in frames, etc., and that's the kind of mirror we think of. But the kind of mirrors they had back then, that wasn't developed until the 13th century. The kind of mirrors they had back then were made of burnished metal or polished stone. Now, if you've ever looked into a mirror like that, you realize you don't get a clear picture, a clear a picture of what you're looking at. There's a distortion there. And so at best, you have a dim view of what you're looking at. And that's the imagery that Paul uses here that they would understand. Now, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Now, you can take this in just about any direction you want to go. When it comes to what we're going to be like when we see Christ, we look in a mirror today, we're not seeing what it's going to be like. We only see a part of that. We're going to be changed and glorified one day. But more than that, all of our attempts to look at the truth of God's love in this life and God's truth as it's reflected in creation, as it's reflected in history, as it's reflected in scripture, as it's reflected in our own conscience, as glorious as it is, is but a dim and imperfect view of what it will be one day. Why? Because of our human frailty. That's why. Because of our own sin. That's why. We, we couldn't handle it all if, we, if, if, we, if it was all given to us. Our perception of realities is real as far as we can see, but yet it's still dim and imperfect in light of what is coming. For we, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Now that caught my attention, the fact that Paul puts himself into that mix. There's nobody in the New Testament to me that is as intelligent as the Apostle Paul. No one that's had any greater experiences than he has. Now we know the Apostle John got to go into the third heaven. We have the book of the Revelation as a result of it. But nobody had any greater experiences than the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's, matter of fact, he's seen the Lord face to face. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Paul could look at them and say, hey, I've already seen him face to face. When, when was that? On the Damascus Road when God stopped him and he, and he was changed and converted. That became the basis of his apostleship. You had to be a witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. I want to show you another time that he saw him face to face. Right in the very abode that God lives in now, in heaven, in the third heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. <clears throat> It says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, 
such a man was caught up to the third heaven. You know, there's, a, there's the lower heavens, which we see as we look up in the, in the daytime. We see the sky and the clouds. There's the upper heavens above that, which is what we see at night, the universe and the stars. And then there's a third heaven. The first two heavens we can see with our eyes. The third heaven we believe by faith that it's there. It's where God dwells. He says in verse 3, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, Paul had seen Christ face to face on the Damascus road. He had been somehow brought into heaven in an experience. He had seen heaven. He had been there in the mighty place of, of beauty there in heaven. And the point being, Paul could have looked at them and said, now you see through a mirror darkly. I'm a little different because I've already seen face to face. But the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. He puts himself into the mix. And he says, you take my experience. And then the Corinthians, who didn't hold a candle to the knowledge that, that Paul had, and certainly looked after these kinds of experiences. He said, you take that experience of going into heaven and seeing him. You take that experience of the Damascus Road. You take all that I have come to understand as an apostle. You put it together and I'm in the same mix. I'm looking in a mirror dimly. I don't see it yet. I can't see it yet. But there's going to come a day that we will. When there's so much to know, the one who knows the most should be the first one to be humble enough to say of what he doesn't know. Seems like the older you get, the more you learn about what you don't know. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm in that mix. I see through a mirror dimly. I see an imperfect things as I look into it. We must ask a question that's relevant to what Paul is saying here. What mirror is he talking about? When you look into a mirror, you see dimly. Well, the mirror to me would be anything that, that, that reveals Christ and his love to us. Anything, everything that reveals that in our present life. We can look in Romans 1.20, the visible creation. He said he's revealed in the visible creation around us. It would, it would have to include the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he, he emptied his glory, he still came. And there were men who saw him. He was here on this earth. It would have to include scripture itself. Anything that mirrors, anything that, that brings to light the, the revelation of Jesus and his truth and his love for us. When John said in his epistle in John 1.14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to submit to you that, that, that what, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, when they did behold the Lord Jesus Christ, it was only to the degree that God allowed them to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in that, it was a dim and imperfect view of what they're going to see one day when we see him. It's the same thing when we are living in our spiritual lives. What we see, the, the word dimly there is the word we get the word enigma from. We see in a mirror dimly. An enigma is a riddle or a dark saying. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, the Lord said he would not speak to Moses in dark speech. In other words, I'm not speaking to you, Moses, in things you, that you can't understand because you want to hear. Therefore, I, I'll tell you what I have to say to you. You know, it's interesting that how Jesus spoke in parables and even told his disciples in Matthew 13, 13, that he did this intentionally. And if you'll study them, what he's doing is he's taking the people that want to know and he's telling them. But the people that don't want to know, he will not cast his pearls before swine. And what he does reveal, what he does reveal and once a person grasps it, it still is looking into a mirror and seeing dimly and imperfect. I'll tell you what, he just took all the roots of pride right out of us. 
Anybody in here who thinks they know something about the Lord immediately has to be humbled by the fact that the, the best of knowledge that we can ever have, the Apostle Paul putting himself into that situation, is but a dim and imperfect view of what yet we will see and know one day. Now make sure you get the picture here. As we choose to yield to Christ, God reveals more and more truth to us. It's a walk. It's a progression. Uh, years down the road, as you're a Christian, you'll understand and have revealed to you much more than you had when you first got started. But even at the pinnacle, and I keep saying it's like a broken record, at the very pinnacle of when you, you just can't take anymore. Dwight L. Moody said, oh God, stop it, I can't take anymore. When you get to that place and you think there cannot be anymore, Paul says, no, 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 you'd have to understand. What you see at that point, at that pinnacle, it's nothing but a dim and imperfect view of what he has reserved for us. As a matter of fact, it's his love that limits that revelation because we couldn't stand it if he gave it to us. And so he just deals it out in proportion and in part, in pieces. And he says, hey, there's coming a day when all of that's going to change and you're going to know as you have been fully known. The fact that Paul includes himself in the mix obviously includes all of us. You know, the older I get, I more than realize this truth. I, I was down in uh, the Caribbean. You know, I love to go to the Bahamas and suffer for the Lord Jesus. I just love to do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know y'all go down and work hard. I know you do, and I'm not knocking that. But I just love it down there. I mean, I mean goodness. And the water down there is so neat. It's uh, like being in a room, like this room right here was underwater. That's the way it looks. Have you, ever, have you been down there? The water is clear as crystal. And you can just, you can go deeper. In fresh water, I can only go about 20 feet down because my ears, they hurt me so bad. But the density of salt water is such that you can just go on down and down and down. I remember being down there with Jim Bird. He used to work with Precept. And uh, we, we decided we were gonna, one afternoon we were going to take a break. And we had the whole afternoon to go swimming. I loved it. Twist my arm. I'll go with you. So we got our mask on and our snorkels and our flippers. I weighed 298 at the time. I looked like Shamu the whale with a bathing suit on. We walked down and get into the water. <laughs> and as soon as we got out there, I mean, it was wonderful. The sand was just beautiful, white. We could go down about 30 feet and you could feed the fish around the coral. Then it was so much fun. And we, we fooled around for a while. It got boring after a while. So I looked out and I said, it got dark out there. And I asked the missionary, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, when you get out there and it gets dark, is that coral, is that what makes the water look dark? And he said, oh, no, no, no. I want, I want you to find out what it is. You swim out there. So Jim and I began to swim about 200 yards out. We were swimming out, just swimming out. Jim was having trouble breathing because he didn't realize <laughs> when you have your head up like this, you don't breathe because your snorkel's under the water. You put your head down and breathe, and that's the airs up here. Jim was choking up, and we're swimming out. We got out, to, oh, I found out why it got dark out there. It wasn't coral. It was a drop-off of about five to 600 feet. I mean, it was the main channel. When I got out there, I was swimming out over, and I'm thinking, whoa! And I felt like I was hanging, so spin. I get a chill. I was like I was hanging Six or 700 feet up above what? I don't know what's down there. I can see light rays go down as far, just way down. And then it just got pitch black, syrupy black. And I saw fish that was as big as I was. That's big. I didn't know what they were. I don't know if they had barracuda or what. They weren't sharks. I didn't see that big fin on the back of them. I was checking that out. But I couldn't, I, I, I kept being frustrated. Is this the child or is this the parent? I mean, I, I wasn't sure 
which fish I was looking at there, but the one I was looking at was as big as I was. And I'll tell you what I did. When we swam out over that, which was so without, does this seem like unsearchable below us? It made me cautious of every move I was making. Back here, it was easy. I could see, I could do what I wanted to do, but when I swam out over that, it was like something overwhelmed me to the place that made me cautious of every move that I made. And the Apostle Paul does this for me in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I don't know what he does for you. But he walks me out over a depth of something that's so far beyond my even comprehension. And he says, Wayne, you think you understand. You think you understand. But you don't have a clue of what you're going to know one day when you see him and you're made like him. And God's love that will not let you go is going to bring you to that place. And one day you will see Jesus as he is. We see through a mirror dimly. Anybody want to stand up and applaud yourself for what you know this morning? I dare not. I, I, I dare think that nobody would do that. Because what Paul has just done by putting himself in the mix is say, I don't care how smart you think you are. And you may have a handle on truth, and as far as you can concern, it's truth. But you don't know the, what's out there that's one day going to absorb it all into itself. You're going to understand one day what you don't understand right now. Well, we get a dim view. Secondly, but what we will know when the perfect comes will cause us to love him forever. And I, I don't know if this will ever get out of me this morning like it got into me. I told the same thing to the first service, and I'm not so sure it got out. Sometimes when I'm studying, that's the biggest frustration. You get something inside of you, and it's so overwhelming to you. It's just not, you can't find the words to express it. But this verse here, folks, will overwhelm you if you'll just let it do it. Now, you pray for me as we go through it. I want it to get out like it got in. Bill Stafford says he has a spell. Son, I had a spell when I saw this. When I first interpreted this verse, I thought it meant that I'm going to know everything God knows. <laughs> That's ridiculous to start with, and I knew it was, but I couldn't figure out then what's he saying. He says, let's walk through it, and I think it'll bless you. He says, for now I know in part, but then. And once again, Paul's not suggesting we can't know now. It's a progressive knowledge every day. He's simply stating that all the knowledge we'll get down here on this earth is nothing to compare with what's coming when we see Christ face to face. And I want to illustrate one more time. A fish can be swimming in a creek and it'll know every rock and every log it can get under, but it has no idea of the ocean that stream is flowing into. And that's what Paul is trying to say. There's an ocean of knowledge here you don't have and can't have until you see Christ face to face. Now let's stop and ask for a second, what is it that we do know that we, even though it's a dim view, it's still a pretty good view. What, what do we know? Well, we do know, for starters, and we'll, we'll just touch on a couple of things. We do know that when Jesus died on the cross that he totally has taken the load of sin and guilt off of us when we have received him by faith. Now, I hope you know that this morning. I hope you're not going around beating yourself up for what you did before you came to know Christ. I hope you understand he took that load of sin off of you. He took that guilt off of you. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on and so on and so on. But I want to tell you something. That's enough, but we don't understand even all of that. 
We just have a dim view of it. And these people who are always trying to figure God out, when it comes to the matter, for instance, of election and predestination, and people have God so boxed in that they have figured him out from A to Z. Friend, to me, I back off and I say, Lord God, here's my lightning rod. When you strike them, don't hit me. Because what we know of salvation is a mystery. Paul, the most intelligent man in the New Testament, said in Ephesians, the third chapter, it's a mystery. It's beyond me. I cannot fathom salvation. But what we do have and what we do know about salvation is absolutely adequate and sufficient to get us from here to the port that, to which we're destined. But at that port, we're going to find out a whole lot more than we ever dreamed could possibly be a part of this salvation. That's what Paul's saying. Not only do we know that, we also know from Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. i tell you what, we don't understand suffering, but we can at least understand what God just said. And there have been a hundred people at least have asked me over the years, Wayne, explain to me suffering. And I shoot at it. The only thing I know is what God's Word says, but I fall far short of being able to explain to somebody why their infant child that they have just prayed for that God took on to be with himself. I don't understand it. I don't understand how a godly person living on the street here can be absolutely molested and beaten to death. I don't understand that. I don't understand how the unrighteous sometimes seem as if they don't even suffer. I don't understand. But what I do understand is sufficient to get me through this life. Anybody who says they can figure all that stuff out bothers me because Paul himself said, whatever we do know is but a dim and imperfect understanding of what will come one day. But Paul is pointing again now to seeing him face to face. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Have you ever heard about somebody, maybe known them through acquaintance, maybe written them, maybe called them, maybe emailed them, whatever, and you thought you knew them? And finally came the day that you could sit down face to face and you found out then that what you thought you knew wasn't anything close to what you find out now because they're much more wonderful than perhaps if, it, if that's the direction you want to take this than you ever thought they would be. I remember when I first saw Diana. By the way, she'd be proud of me this week. I've been cooking and washing dishes and vacuuming. I just got bored. I figured I'm 55 years old. I might as well learn a few of these things. <laughs> dishes don't look as good as when she's there, but I mean, they're, they're clean. But when I first saw Diana, she was in that Miss Kentucky pageant. Don't get misled. I wasn't a contestant. <laughs> but she was in the Miss Kentucky pageant. And uh, I rooted for her to win. I really did. I was dating another girl. She didn't make the top ten. I was rooting for Diana to win that pageant. Didn't know her. Madam's house cat. The whole crowd there wanted her to win. That was just totally unbiased. And I remember going over to the place they were staying because I was with the sister of this girl that I was dating. I, when I went over there, I was standing there, and Diana walked by, and I'm thinking, whoo She turned and smiled at me, and I'm thinking, yep, yep. You could have said, Wayne, do you know Diana Barker. She was a Barker before I married her. Isn't that awful? I made Diana Barker Barber now. That's that name up. We, of course, we simplified everything. Just change it one letter. You could say, Wayne, do you know Diana Barker? And I say, whoa, no. You mean that tall, good-looking rascal that was there? Oh, no, I don't. Sure wished I could. Well, I've, I've been real inhibited all my life. <laughs> so 
I called her up and asked her out. I mean, what, what, what's to lose? All she says, no. She said she'd go with me. And I remember that Thanksgiving weekend I went over there and Chris is here. Her family, there must be nine gazillion, eight children there. I couldn't remember all her names. And I walked into a place that didn't have a lot of the world's goods, but I walked into a family that had things that, that I wished every family had. I remember taking her out to eat. And when, when I don't eat, I'm either very sick, I'm dead, or God's doing a work in my life. So one of those three, there are no exceptions. And I couldn't eat. I could not eat. The more I talked to her face to face, the more wonderful she was far beyond what I thought I knew about her. Now, 30 years later, coming this, this coming April 19th, she, you asked me, do I know that tall, good-looking girl was in that pageant? I'll say, oh, yes. I know, that's Diana. She's the best mother my two children could have ever had and the best friend I have on this earth. I know her. I know her very well. I know her. That's what Paul's saying. You know, that, you know the thing that encourages me is that one day we shall know him as he knows us. You know, it's, it's like the closest I can get to him in this earth just gives me a little glimpse of what it's going to be like one day when I see him face to face. That ought to encourage every single person in this place. God's love will see to it that we'll arrive at that point. Now we know in part, and the part we have is very thrilling, and it's nothing to downplay that for sure. But it's just to encourage us that there's much, much more to come. One day we shall know as we're known. Now as we look at that phrase, that's the key to this whole understanding. We shall know as epignosco. Some people say that that simply means to know. But I, I believe it would absolutely be slanderous to the whole text for it to just be simple knowledge. I believe it, it, it's fully, to, fully known. To fully know something. Epi means that intensifier. To fully know something. Knowledge above knowledge. We think we have knowledge now. We have a certain fullness of knowledge now. But in that day, it'll be the fullness of knowledge when we see him. The verb is future middle. But it's used as a deponent verb, which, which this throws in an added thought here, which doesn't really have a whole lot to do with, with his direction here. But some people think that when they see him, they'll be so radically changed, they'll lose their identity, they'll lose their personality. Nobody would even know who they are when they see Christ. No, sir. Because by the way he uses that verb, it has the idea, Wayne's still going to be Wayne, but a transformed Wayne, a glorified Wayne, a glorified body. Thank the Lord, I need that. A glorified mind to understand what he's never understood before, but very quickly recognizable and very quickly identifiable. I just threw that out in case you've ever asked that question. Very clear. You're not going to lose who you are. If you've lost a loved one and you're looking forward to seeing them one day, don't worry, you'll recognize him a mile and a half off. But the difference will be the glorification of that person. The, the, the fullness of maturity that has finally come. He's been maturing all along down here. But then that full maturity will, that will come. Whether it will be at our death down here or sim simply when the Lord Jesus comes. I don't know. But somehow that, that's equated. When we see Christ, we shall be like him. The last part of the verse clears up what Paul's saying. And I, this is to clear out any thinking that you have that one day you're going to know everything that God knows. That's not what the verse is saying. However, it appears to read that way. Look very carefully. Then I will know fully, <clears throat> just as I also have been fully known. Oh, son. Look at that last phrase. I have been fully known. My wife thinks she knows me, but she really doesn't. But there's someone who fully knows me. You know who that is? And it's in the past tense. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to study Psalm 139 tonight. I thought that's unique 
that these two are coming together. I mean, how, how often has this happened? And Psalm 139 talks the whole song. Is David being overwhelmed by the fact that God has known him before the foundations of the world. God designed him. God created him. God knows everything about him. And the apostle Paul understands the same understanding here. He says, God, I have been fully known. Now, you've got to think with me. You've got to put your thinking cap on and don't move too far. We're in a chapter on love. What he has just done is so beautifully tie together God's love with God's knowing Somehow loving someone has something to do with knowing that person, understanding that person. You see, the enigma here is that Paul says, I will fully know as I am fully known. He didn't use the term we. He says I. He puts the personal pronoun. By the way, until you've personalized this into your life, you can't see what he's talking about here. The Apostle Paul that stood there before he was converted and saw Stephen stoned to death. The Apostle Paul who absolutely brought havoc to the Christian community was on his way to arrest Christians when God arrested him on the Damascus Road. The Apostle Paul that Romans 7 seems to indicate still struggled with his own flesh as you and I struggle with our own flesh. And he can come here and say, God has fully known me in a context when he's just been talking about God fully loving him. Now think with me. God loves us fully because he knows us fully. I'll tell you what, that'll do to your theological bubble. It'll pop it when you think you have to do something to make God love you. God loved you before you were ever born, friend. That's the thing that's incredible to me. That's the thing that humbles me. Hey, progressively I'm to be maturing every day. Progressively I'm to be obeying so that more revelation can come in my life. But do I do that every day? No. Do you? Wow. Can you help me after the service? Man, how many times do we even absolutely turn our backs on him like David and we commit willful sin? Knowing, knowing that that's shutting down the process of our maturing. And yet God knew that before we were ever born. God knew that. God knew every wart. God knew every sin. God knew everything about us. He has fully known us and in spite of that has fully loved us. So in loving comes the knowing. The point is that God fully knows and understands us and yet he still loves us. You know Spurgeon was asked the question one time, how in the world could God hate Esau? And Spurgeon said, that has never bothered me. He said, well, what does bother you? He said, how in the world could God love Jacob? Now, you think on that for a few days. You know what? We live in a society that believes that we deserve to be loved by somebody, especially God. We pray that way. God's our cosmic bellhop. We name it, we claim it, we'll think he's going to do it. But yet anything short of hell is grace. And he knows us, folks. He knows us. He knows you. He knows the thoughts that went through your mind this past week before you even said it. Maybe you didn't say it, God knows the thoughts, that you didn't say. God knows the things that you did in the darkness and you think nobody else saw it. God knows that. Darkness is light to him. God knows everything about us this morning. You can't, you can't put on nice clothes and come to church and cover up what God doesn't know about you. God knows everything about us. He fully knows us. But thank God he fully loves us. In spite of us, he loves us. Because to know is to love. And then it goes in a cycle. To love is to know. And to know is to love. You see what Paul is saying here? One day when I see him, when the perfect comes, when I see him face to face, I will know as I am.
fully known. What do you think he's talking about there? What comes to my heart, and the only thing I can, I, can, I can rest on, is the fact that Paul says, one day, one day, my flirty and fleeting will, one day, when I see him, I will understand something about him that I could never have understood down here. And when I see him, the knowledge of him and the love of him combined will take my will and his will and make it one and we will be one forever. This body will be shed and I'll walk in perfect harmony with him forever and ever and ever and ever because I will love him because I know him as he has known and loved me. Man, if that doesn't excite you this morning, Son, just get saved. That's coming. That day's coming. I talked to Diana this past week and I was sharing her that truth. And it just overwhelmed me. I mean, I still hadn't got it out like I feel like I want to get it out, what it did to my own heart. And Diana said, you know, that's so comforting to me. I've been down here with Stephanie and Holland and Eric and she, we love our family so much. But you know what? It's tough sometimes you put two families under the same roof. Tried that? Help yourself. Do you like pain? She said, I've been sewing 12 hours a day. And she said, I have seen, I've been grumpy and I've been frustrated and I've been upset. And she said, I wondered one day, God, why in the world do you even love me? When I called her and told her that, she said on the phone, isn't that the most comforting truth in the world to know that God loves us in spite of us? He has fully known us. He has fully loved us. And yet we don't fully know him and we don't fully love him. But one day we will. And we'll walk in harmony and oneness with him forever. Do you realize what this is? This is a fulfillment of the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17. When Jesus prayed that they will be one, he said, oh, Father, as we are one. One day we will. One day we will. Not only with him, but with each other. Do you realize that? We'll be so enmeshed into his will at that time that we will be also that same way with one another. Is that not incredible? I keep having people come to me and say, Wayne, I want to start a church. I hear people say this all the time. And that's okay if that's what God's told you. But you know what I sometimes pick up? I've seen all the ways churches have messed up. We're going to start a church and we're going to do it right. <laughs> Help yourself. When it gets right, just don't you join it because you just messed it up. You say, well, churches ought to be one. Yes, sir, they ought to be one. But what's the key to that? The key to that is the individual believers living in oneness with Christ day by day. And to the point, and to the degree we don't live that way is that to the degree we don't experience that oneness. But one day, we will. With him and with each other forever. That day's coming. Well, what I know, and the most excited I can be even in the midst of a sermon, <laughs> is yet but a dim and imperfect view of what's coming. But what I do know, or what I will know, rather, when he comes, will cause me to love him forever. And then finally, you can then see why he concludes the chapter like he does, although they didn't have chapters and verses, we'll just make it out like he concludes it. <laughs> this thought kind of ends here. You can see now why love is the greatest thing, greatest gift. You want to chase after a gift, chase after the giver, and he'll give you the greatest gift, which is love. See, to the Corinthian church, they thought that prophecies, not the kind of prophecy of preaching, but the kind of foretelling, they thought that speaking in other tongues, they thought that miracles and healings, this was a proof of spirituality. He says, no, it is not. The proof of spirituality 
is love that's produced in your life, not only to you, but through you. And that love that will not let you go, that reaches out and touches others and changes their lives, and one day will ultimately change us all to be like Christ. Nothing touches love. Nothing touches it. It'll never be in your life or my life until we surrender and break before him. Never, never. The invisible line that God draws a thousand times in your life and my life every day and says, okay, Wayne, my way, your way is the line that we have to deal with every day of our life. It's choices. And when we choose to bow before him, his spirit then produces that divine quality of love through our life. That love which will not let us go. Verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. When you walk, surrender to Christ, there'll always be these three things. Faith, hope, and love. The word abide means they'll stay put. They're going to stay right where they are. They're not going to be set aside like prophecies. They're not going to be set aside like knowledge. They'll always be there. For eternity, they will be there. Paul says these three will abide. Some people say, well, no, 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 no. I can see why maybe two of them can, I mean, one of them can abide. I can understand why love would always be there. It's the greatest. But faith and hope, I don't see why they'll be there because faith is replaced by sight and hope is replaced by the eternal presence. No, no, no. That's a yes and no. Faith to us down here standing on God's word in the world we live in certainly does not give us any sight to go on. We, do, we, we stand on it. But the very root meaning of faith is to trust in the character and testimony of God. Forsaking all, I trust Him. And certainly it's a yes in the sense that we won't have all the other things around us that, that cause it to be there. And we can see why some people say we don't need faith anymore. But in a sense we do. Because that faith, is a, it doesn't decrease, but it increases when we see Him. When we see Him, we have that much more reason to trust Him in all things, even for all of eternity. And the word hope has by implication in it the, the root meaning of expectancy. And we live in hope. It's a certainty. And it, since we don't know everything God knows, we'll know Him as He knows us, and there'll be a, a marrying of our wills together. There's still things to learn. And for all of eternity, I believe, we'll be learning. I think a million years, once we see him, we'll be walking by him and just fall on our face one more time and thank him for this eternal redemption that we just cannot get over. We're always learning of him. So hope has got to be the expectancy of the, uh, of the things that will be revealed to us down the road. We keep continuing, continuing to see that for all of eternity. People say, what are we going to do in heaven? Are you kidding? Man, there's going to be a whole lot going on. You're not going to be sitting under a tree fishing. Although that'd be nice if they threw that in. <clears throat> in the first place, the reason love is the greatest in the faith and hope is because faith and hope would not even be there without love. <laughs> love has got to touch a person's life before they ever have faith or they ever have hope. You don't have faith until you, first of all, have been touched by the love of God. And then the character of God so speaks to your, your heart that then quickens faith in you to trust Him and then to hope and expect the things he's promised. So faith and hope really are a part of what love produces. That's why that love is even greater than that. Faith, faith and hope, however, they're essential, are still a part of the whole that we would call love. Love has a wider application. You can be the only person on this earth. Faith and hope is between you and God, period. Between you and God. But love has a wider sphere. It reaches out to others. You, somebody told me years ago, and I see it in Scripture over and over, you cannot not contain God's love. You have to release it. 
So if it's being produced in you, somebody's going to be benefited by it because you can't hold on to it. It's too hot to handle. You've got to release it. You've got to release it. But you see, faith and hope, that, that's just between you and, you and God, but love is between you and God and between others that are around you. Love is the debt that we always owe and are consistently paying. Therefore, through faith and, and hope, though faith and hope are, are enduring, just as enduring as love, they're going to be there forever. Love is the greatest of all these. Now, somebody might ask the question, why did he single out those three? Why didn't he mention wisdom, courage, patience, obedience, zeal, purity, and keep on going to make the list? Because if you'll look at it, these three words encompass everything else that's a virtue in the Christian life. Everything else is wrapped up into that one word, which is love, which branches off into faith and hope. If you look carefully, you'll see if one possesses faith, hope, and love, all the other characteristics will also be there. There's quite a bit of confusion going on in Corinth about prophecy and knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And I think perhaps now you might be able to see why Paul does what he does. Why he brings them back and shows them that this love that will not let you go is a love that will not let others go and a love that will get you from here to here. And if you'll submit to the giver, you can walk in that love. That love will change you. That love will, will radically transform you and others. And then you're enjoying the journey. And then with the expectancy that one day when you see him, you'll know love like you've never known it before when your will and his will are married together forever. As Christians, we're very sorely in need of understanding 1 Corinthians chapter 13. My time's gone, but let me ask you a question. What do you rest, what is the basis of your resting your faith on this morning? It's a sad day when people say, I know I'm saved because I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, and I was baptized. That's a sad day. Because folks, you can, anybody can do that. That does not mean you're saved. It could mean you are, but it doesn't necessarily mean it. Look at your life. Is faith, hope, and love evident in your life? You can't have one without the other. The love will produce the other two. Are they evident in your life? One of two things. If it's not, you don't know Christ, or you're a Christian that's chosen to attach yourself to everything but Christ, and you're one miserable, upside-down person this morning. And God says... Let my love change you. Come back to me. You don't have to prove anything to me. Come back to me. So attach yourself to me. Surrender to me. And I'll produce a love in you and then teach you how to release that love through you. And then that love will encourage you and put that hope and faith into your life. And one day when you see him, you'll know it to its fullest because you will, your will and his will be one forever. Great day coming. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.